All right, so tonight will be our last night in the Old Testament, Doctrine of Repentance. Um, and then next week we'll be moving into the New Testament. And so we'll kind of be doing the same thing in the New Testament as far as hopefully three weeks, hopefully starting with just laying a foundation of vocabulary, moving on from there. Uh, but this week will be the last week in the Old Testament. And we have gone through our vocabulary. Um, you'll remember we talked about Nakam and about God repenting, and we talked about uh, the differences of how he changes his actions towards man at different times and how he changes his emotions at times, but he never changes his character, never changes his mind. And we moved into talking about shuv, which is the, the primary word for mankind repenting, and how it, it was a directional change, physical directional change, and then it's applied to how our hearts change directions from sin and iniquity towards falling after God. Um, towards that end, we talked about a lot about um, leb or labob, and that's the word for heart. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about that because that's the primary object of repentance in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament next week, we'll, we'll see it's a lot more focused on the mind. But in the Old Testament, they use the language of the heart. And the reason we've talked about that word so much is because um, the Old Testament concept definitely included the mind with the heart. Like it, it's, it includes what we would describe with two words, mind and heart. And they just used one word to, to really encompass both those things. I included one more. I, I think each week I've had a, a verse that kind of illustrated that a little bit. And this is one I found this week where it's actually translated as mind instead of heart. Um, and that just illustrates how how this word is taken to include your decision-making center. It's not just your emotion center. It's not just the center of your affections and the things you love. It really is your decision-making center. And that's, this is uh, Moses talking to the nation of Israel, and he's talking about what will happen to them if they walk in disobedience to the law, the book of the law that he's writing. And he's saying, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of Leb. And so he's saying the thing that you make decisions with will be confused and will be blinded if you walk in disobedience to God. Um, so that's just an illustration of how, how that word en encompasses both of what we're talking about with mind and heart. So don't lose sight of that. Uh, and then last week we talked a lot about the different elements of repentance, um, which was really interesting to me. And we talked a lot about things like fasting and weeping and mourning and um, praying, crying out to God in confession, um, tearing clothes, all those different sort of things that we see in the Old Testament that were like external actions that go along with repentance. And um, we talked a lot about, this was where we ended last week, we talked about how Joel, um, in, in the midst of prophesying the day of judgment, he, he calls the nation to return to God, to repent with their, all their hearts, uh, and then he goes with fasting, with weeping and mourning, um, all these external things. He's saying, you know, repentance will, if done correctly, lead to some of these external things going on with it. But then he's really quick to remind us, okay, don't make a checklist of these external things and lose sight of the heart. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. He says, don't get so carried away with tearing your clothes up and doing these external things that your heart on the inside isn't tore up at all. Let your heart on the inside be the thing that's tore up. Don't, don't, don't go about doing all this external stuff like it's a checklist, like you're going to trick God or please God. 
and fool him with all this external stuff going on when your heart's far from him. So tear up your heart. Let your heart be the thing that's tore up, not your just your clothes. But Lord willing, um, we will be so broken over our sin that fasting and weeping and mourning will just be things that naturally come out of our hearts when they turn towards God. Um, I had a really good question last week. I kind of threw something out there without explaining it whatsoever. Um, we talked a little bit about, hopefully y'all can see that. That might be way too small. We talked about um, confessing the sins of the fathers, and that's something that crops up a couple times in the Old Testament, and I mentioned it. I didn't really know what to do with that. Um, it was something that was interesting to me, but I didn't really look into it very much. So this past week I've looked into it a little bit more. And here's two examples of when the people actually do that. It's not commanded, they actually do it. So this is a recording of them actually doing that, confessing the sins of their fathers. Um, this first example, Jeremiah 14, 20 says, We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. So what was tripping me up about this was that I often associate confession with um, justification or with forgiveness of sin. You know, you get 1 John 1, 9, and it says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But in this, this context, in both of these contexts, there's the, the, the part where they're acknowledging the sins of their father is in the portion when they're acknowledging their sin not the portion when they're pleading pardon for their sin. So you can divide this, this verse up into two sections. You can, you can divide it up into where they are acknowledging their sin before God and the part when they are um, pleading forgiveness for God or petitioning God. And you can see uh, this, this first section, we acknowledge our wickedness. That's where they're acknowledging their sin before God, confessing their sin. And that's when they say, and the iniquity of our fathers, and then it's not until verse 21 where they begin to petition and ask for forgiveness um, or um, that God would not break covenant with them and not dishonor his, his glorious throne. So, so he, he's, there's that, that, that confession of the sins of the Father always happens in the context of the acknowledgement of sin, right? And it heightens the sense of the shame that's experienced because of their sin, it's basically saying that this isn't just my, my problem. I'm not just born into this. This isn't just an isolated thing. This has been my heritage. I've been handed down this sin from generation to generation. And it's a shameful thing. It's an acknowledgement of the shame of sin um, that's been passed down generation to generation. And, and also, it's, it's a recognition that their fathers have failed to obey the commands in Deuteronomy 6 that talk about how the people were to tell their children all the things, um, tell the children the law, tell the children all the things that God did in um, the Exodus and bringing them out of Egypt. They were supposed to tell their children. They were supposed to write on their doorposts, bind it around their arms. Um, this was supposed to be central to what they did on a day-to-day -day basis was telling their kids, these are the things the Lord has done for us. And when they fail to do that, they wind up walking away. And so them confessing the sins of their father is a recognition that they failed to do this, their fathers have failed to do this. Instead of passing down faithful teaching of the Word of God, they've instead passed down sin. And it's just a recognition of that sin and inheriting that sin. 
And it's not too unlike when we understand the doctrine of original sin and how we've inherited sin from our fathers, um, originally Adam. And when we recognize that, we understand our guilt isn't just our own sin. It's been handed down to us. We, we are guilty even at the time of our birth because of the original sin that's passed down to us. And it really just heightens the understanding of our absolute guilt before God and our position before God. And that's really what I think is what's obviously they didn't have as a thorough understanding of original sin as what we see in Paul and Romans. But I think that's what they're getting at. It's just that depth of understanding of this is the shame and the sin that we're in. It's, it's way deeper than even just me. It goes back generations. This is the shame that we're in. Very similar in Daniel 9, 16 um, through 18. Um, I put this up here. It says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. So this is where he's asking for mercy from God. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your heart and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So where he's petitioning for God's mercy, he, he brings it back into his context and his people that he's confessing and repenting, leading in repentance and repenting on behalf of he brings it back. He's not, he's not asking for forgiveness for the people who have gone on before him. And so that's, that's what was tripping me up a little bit about that. Like he's not, neither of these passages are asking for forgiveness for people who have already died. You know, this isn't some kind of weird, they're on in purgatory, we're going to pray and ask that God would forgive their sins, the sins of our fathers who have already passed on. It's nothing weird like that. It's, it's just a recognition of the sin that's been passed down from generation to generation. Um, before we move on from Daniel 9, though, two questions that I just find super fascinating in this passage. What is the cause um, that Daniel pleads for, the, for his forgiveness? What does he ground the forgiveness on? What does he ask the cause of the forgiveness or ask as the cause of their forgiveness? It's in the very last line of that verse. Because of his great mercy. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's making a point to say, don't forgive us because of our righteous deeds. It's not because of our righteousness. We aren't pleading our works before you. We're pleading the character of God, namely his great mercy. Um, and then one other question. What's the purpose of forgiveness? What does, he, what does Daniel plead as the purpose for God to forgive them and have mercy on them? in verse 17. It says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. So it's this idea of God 
showing grace, showing mercy for his own name's sake. It all goes back to his glory. So those are just two things. We see it a lot in the New Testament, God delivering for his name's sake. And of course, we know the doctrine of salvation by faith alone and not by works, by total dependence on God and his character. Um, but those ideas are clearly present in the Old Testament as well. Daniel's pleading, don't look at my works, don't look at our righteousness, because it's not even righteous. Look at your character. Please, by your character, save us. Um, so this week, as we're moving into it, we're really just going to focus on one aspect of repentance. Um, it's probably going to be a little bit shorter tonight, um, but I think that's good. We can just focus on one thing and wrap this whole Old Testament side of repentance up. Um, so what we're going to be looking at a little bit tonight is just the possibility of it becoming too late to repent um, and being, um, being pretentious with repentance. And we see that crop up a couple times in the Old Testament. We see people either reaching a point where they can no longer repent or failing to repent because they only are remorseful or sorry about the consequence of their sin but they aren't actually truly repentant. Um, so that's kind of where we're going to be tonight. We're going to start um, and move into that by looking at this passage in Isaiah 58. Um, and this is, um, Isaiah is calling out the people of Israel. They are observing certain religious external things, such as fasting specifically here, but they're doing it while their hearts are far from God. And they're doing it in pretense. They're basically being hypocrites, right? Their, their actions, their external actions are doing things that would indicate that they have a good relationship with God, and they're even fooled into thinking they have a good relationship with God, but all the while they're doing things that are so contrary to God's nature that He utterly rejects this attitude that they have here. Um, Cody, can you read that well enough? If, can, you, can you read that passage for us? Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted? and you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you see your own pleasure, and oppress all of your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day of a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Yeah. So... This specifically hones in on the issue of fasting, but he's basically saying, like, y'all fast, y'all do all these things, y'all are putting on this, all this external stuff, y'all are bowing down y'all's heads like reeds, y'all are spreading down sackcloth, y'all are sprinkling ashes, 
y'all are doing all these things that would make me think that y'all are sorry and that y'all are actually repentant. But in reality, you're doing them, it says in verse 3, you do them for your own pleasure, right? Which is completely contrary to what we saw in Daniel 9, where Daniel's asking God to do it for his own namesake. You're doing it for your own pleasure. Not only that, but they're doing it with this attitude of entitlement. They're, they're, they're doing all these external things when in verse 6 it talks about what God really desires is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. So what's going on is the people are doing all this stuff, but at the same time, they're being very unjust. And it, it, this passage goes on and lists all sorts of things and all sorts of ways that the Israelites are taking advantage of people. They aren't being hospitable. They're, they're not taking care of the needy in the land. They're doing things that are very contrary to the character of God, all the while thinking that this, this religious observance of fasting and then putting on these external things will somehow grant them acceptance to God to the point where in verse 3 they say, God, we fasted. Why haven't you seen it? We've humbled ourselves. Why, why, where's our reward? Why aren't you seeing it? Why aren't you taking knowledge of it? Like, like, look at us, God. We're doing all these religious things. Isn't it about time for you to start blessing us and restoring us and prospering us again? That's how backwards they got in their thinking. They got entitled to think that through their religious observance and through doing all these external things that they were going to obligate God or get God to um, restore them or cause them to prosper. And the reality is we can be the same way in our thinking if we aren't careful. We can fall into thinking that if we pray the right prayer, or we confess the right confession, if we do things with our mouths or do things with our actions that really aren't reflective at all of what's going on in our hearts, and our hearts are really far from God while we're doing all these things, we begin to think, well, God, where's my forgiveness? God, why, why are things going the way they're going? And we begin to think that we've obligated God because we've done these very, very shallow, very external things when our hearts are far from God. Um, they haven't turned to him in repentance whatsoever. Such is the case with Israel in this passage, and such is the case um, with us if we aren't careful um, that we, we, do, we get in a routine of doing religious ritual things while our hearts are far from God. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with fasting. Fasting is great, and fasting would have been great for the nation of Israel to do had they actually not been depending on those things for their salvation and trying to obligate God through those things, if instead those things had come from a heart that was already turned towards God and they were doing things that were reflecting God's character and God's working on their life, then fasting would have been quite appropriate. But instead they were, they were using that as a tool to um, get God to acknowledge them they, um, while they were continuing on in all sorts of wickedness that was contrary to God's character. So the reality is, and it happens many times in the Old Testament, that, that people will turn to God in a pretentious way. They'll do the external things, but their heart is never actually turned towards God. That's what happens um, in Jeremiah 3.10. We're told about Judah, the nation of Judah, the southern nation, after Israel has been taken into captivity. Southern Judah, we're told that some of the people saw um, northern Israel going to captivity. They saw the judgment of God, 
and they realized, okay, yeah, we do need to change some things. And so what they did was they returned to God a little bit, but it says, yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. So even this little bit of turning towards God, they saw what was going on with Israel. They knew that something had to change and they changed up some of the actions they were doing. But again, they just fell into this pattern of trying to please God through this very shallow, very ritualistic obedience without ever having their hearts turned towards God in any true way. Um, there was no true interchange, no true repentance that happened um, in Judah at that time. It was just in pretense. And we're going to see the result of that here in a minute. We're going to get back into the, the Jeremiah passage. But before we do that, um, turn in your Bibles to Numbers 14. We're going to spend a couple minutes here. This is one of the first passages in the Old Testament where we see people express remorse, um, but it becomes too late for them to actually repent. Um, so it's Numbers 14. We're just going to hop through and read a couple different verses. We aren't, aren't going to read the whole, um, the whole chapter, um, but we'll, we'll hit the highlights here. Um, and, and to give some context, this is um, nation of Israel's outside the promised land. Um, they've, they've come out of Exodus. They come out of Sinai. And they're on the edge of the promised land. They're about to enter in. And if you remember, they sent in 12 spies. And 10 of them came back and said, hey, there's no way we can do this. There's no way we're going to get killed if we go in there because there's these giants in the land. And only two of those spies said, listen, y'all, God's promised us this land. All we have to do is go in there and take it. He's going to deliver us from these people. And those were Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else was freaking out. Um, so the spies came back. They gave the report. And this is where we pick up in Numbers 14. The people respond to the ten spies who give a bad report of the land. It says, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So these people had seen, they've witnessed God's, God's greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, drawing them out of the land of Egypt, and yet they forget, and they're saying, we'd rather submit ourselves again to that yoke of slavery in Egypt than trust in God that He's going to deliver us from this. Skip down to verse number 8. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread, bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So this is Moses. He's getting in front of the people, and he's saying, Look, y'all, don't fear. God's going to remove the protection from these people. He's, he's going to allow us to take the land. Don't fear. Let's just go in there. And the people respond um, in verse 11. And, oh, I'm sorry, God responds in verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So God's to the point where he's, willing, he's about to just forsake the nation because they have broken covenant with him, and they, they've disregarded him, and he's about to establish Moses instead. He's saying, I'll make you a nation instead. 
Like, let's just forget them. Let's start over with you, Moses. Of course, Moses pleads and um, he, he, he responds and says to God, um, verse 17, And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So he's pleading God according to all these things that describe your character um, that, that were revealed to Moses in Exodus, what, 32, I think, or 34. All these things that are central to God's character. On account of all these, please forgive this people. Um, God responds in verse 20, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to the word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. So God doesn't utterly destroy them. He, he, he pardons them in that regard. But there's still consequences. All the people who would have entered into the promised land are now going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And each of those people are going to die and they'll never get into the promised land, right? That's, that's the consequence of their sin. And so Moses communicates this to the people, right? And the people respond um, if you skip down to verse 39 is where the people respond to hearing that they're going to wander in the wilderness and they're all going to die and it's going to be the next generation that gets to enter the land. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord had promised for we have sinned. Alright, so notice a couple things. They mourn right? So that's one of the things we've talked about with repentance. We've talked about your heart being broken over sin. So they mourn. They all get together. They, they acknowledge their sin in verse 40. They all get together and they say, for we have sin. They acknowledge their sin. And they're about to, they're willing to go up now. They're all, they're all gathered there and willing to go up. So now they're willing to obey God too. They're changing their actions, right? Verse 41, but Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord? when you will not succeed. Um, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. So they're saying, okay, we'll go up now. Like Now that there's a consequence, now that we know we aren't going to be able to go into the land, all right, we're sorry, we sinned, just let us go. We're going we're gonna to go now. We'll, we'll do it now. We'll, we'll listen to you now. And Moses is saying, no, it's, it's too late. Like, God's not going to be with you now. You, you turn back from God, He's not going to be with you now. If you go up, you're going to die. It's, it's just too late, right? Um, verse 44, But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hermah. So it was too late. They got destroyed because they did, and the reality is they did what God had commanded them to do. 
but they did it too late. They, they initially doubted God, and then God judged them and punished them, and it wasn't until after that, after their punishment, that then they were contrite over their sin, and then they expressed some remorse over their sin and said, no, 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 we're sorry, we recognize we sin. please just let us in. We'll, we'll, we'll do it now, right? And it was too late at that point, right? Their hearts were never truly turned towards God. They expressed remorse over the consequence of their sin. They didn't like it. They didn't like that they weren't going to get into the promised land. That didn't sound good to them. And so then they desperately scrambled to try to figure out a way to do it on their own. They, they depend on their own works going up into the land and doing it without God, and they fail. Um, and, and so, I mean, the reality is there came a point for them that because they turned away from God and turned away from doing what he, they called him, what God called them to do, that it became impossible for them to obey God, at, and, and, and it became too late. It became too late for them. Very similar thing happens in 1 Samuel. Um, we've looked at that passage a couple times already. Um, in fact, we looked at this passage for God and repentance, but it also teaches us a really important lesson about Saul and repentance, because a very similar thing happens to Saul. Um, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all, those, all that they have. Um, so this is, this is God commanding Saul and the army um, to go in and to utterly destroy one of the enemies of Israel. Um, God is speaking to Saul and he says, Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So he is commanding them to devote to complete destruction this group of people because they're enemies of the people of God, right? So God is using Saul to accomplish his purposes of destroying this people who are the enemies of God. Verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So basically Saul takes matters into his own hands, right? And he says, you know, we could destroy all this stuff, but instead, why don't we take all the good stuff and we'll just destroy, we'll, we'll, we'll devote to destruction the not-so-good stuff, like the rotted stuff and the worthless stuff, the despised stuff is what it says. We'll devote that stuff to destruction, but why don't we keep the good stuff? I mean, might as well. There's no reason to destroy all of it. So Saul disobeys, right? And this isn't the first time. He, he disobeyed a couple chapters ago too, but he disobeys God's command directly. Uh, so not long after that, the word of the Lord came to Samuel and says, I regret, that was the word we had looked at, I, Nakam, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Saul was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel arose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he sat up a monument for himself and turned and passed on, and went down to Gilgal. So now apparently Saul's built a statue for himself. I mean, he's trying to, he's seeking his own glory. Uh, there's probably a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that we aren't even really told in this passage, but clearly Saul's off base. 
He's directly disobeyed God's command. He's, he's built a statue for himself. Um, so Samuel hears all this, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. It's kind of bizarre the way that before Samuel even calls him out, Saul's already like defending himself, right? He's already like, you know, oh, I did it. I obeyed the word of the Lord. And Samuel didn't even say anything yet. You know, it's like, it's kind of like one of those times where somebody knows they did something wrong or they're feeling guilty about it. And it's like, before you even confront them about it, they deny it or something. You know, it's like, you know they're guilty. So he, he says this, and Samuel said in response, verse 14, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So Samuel's hearing the animals that are supposed to be devoted to destruction, these good animals that Saul and the people kept. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So he doesn't even acknowledge his sin. He comes out, he, he initially lies and denies it, right? He says, we haven't, we obeyed the word of the Lord. Then Samuel confronts him. He says, okay, then why am I hearing sheep? And then Saul says, well, he, he kind of shifts blame, right? He says, it wasn't me, it was the people, right? He says, the people have brought out the best. And, and then he tries to sugarcoat it and says, it's a sacrifice to the Lord. Like he tries to make it sound like it's, they're trying to do the right thing or something, but in reality, they directly disobeyed God. And uh, if you look back at what it said in verse, verse what, three? Um, or verse, verse nine, I'm sorry. Saul and the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and all these things. So it wasn't just the people. Saul was very involved in that. So he's shifting blame. He's making excuses, right? All these things. And so then Saul said to Samuel, um, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Okay, so I think I am skipped out a couple verses. I'm going to turn here real quick. Y'all can turn there too if y'all want. Um, 1 Samuel 15. So after Saul makes the excuses... And he shifts the blame to the people um, in verse 15. Then Samuel responds in verse 16 and said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And Saul responded and said, Speak. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. 
Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So at this point, Saul's disobeyed, he's rebelled, he's turned back from following God, and the consequences come, and he made excuse, excuse after excuse. He's saying, I didn't do it, it was the people, they did it because, you know, they're trying to make sacrifice to God, whatever. He's not owning it, not, not just recognizing his wrong or his sin in any way, shape, or form. And so then the punishment comes. He is rejected from being king, and immediately now we see something switch in Saul. Saul, in verse 24, said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed and the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. All right, so we've got confession of sin. Um, we've, we've got him recognizing it. And then he even, in verse 25, pleads pardon for his sin, right? He's, he's, he's begging forgiveness for his sin. Uh, these are all things that we've been looking at in the context of repentance. How does God respond? Um, through Samuel, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Right? So Samuel goes to great lengths to tell Saul this thing is final. This is, this is what it's going to be. God has finally rejected you. It does not matter that now, after you've seen the consequences of it, you are confessing, it's too late. You are rejected from being king over Israel. Saul never, the difference is, when we see David confronted with his sin um, by Nathan, Nathan calls him out, he says, you are that man. David never makes excuses, right? King of the nation never makes excuses. He just sits back and he takes it, and then he writes Psalm 51, and there's not a hint of excuse or shifting blame in Psalm 51, right? And same thing with Josiah, Second uh, Kings 22. They find the book of the law, right? And it would have been so easy for Josiah to say, man, my, my ancestors, they lost this, this law, this, this, this covenant book, probably the book of Deuteronomy, they lost it. I don't think I'm going to be held responsible for this because I didn't even have it. Like, like he could have made so many excuses, right? But he doesn't. He tears his clothes. He weeps. His heart is contrite before God because he recognizes in that moment the Word of God convicts him of his sin, and he recognizes how far he's fallen short of God's law, and he leads the nation in repentance. Complete different attitude in Numbers 14, 1 Samuel 15, right? All kinds of excuses, all kinds of shifting of blame. The people, um, they, they don't, they aren't broken over their sin. All they're broken over is the consequences of it, right? I mean, Saul never had any contrition until he was rejected, and he just didn't like that consequence, and so he tried to fight it, and he tried to say, okay, 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 you got me. I'll, I'll do this confession. I'll do this stuff. Just, just let me be king again, right? Just like the people in Numbers 14, like, okay, 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 you're right. Just listen, let us go up. We'll, we'll do this thing. We'll do this fight. Just let us go up. We're sorry. We just want to enter into the land. But it's too late, right? And so it is with repentance. Um, if, if, if we delay it and if, if we wait and our hearts are never actually turned to God and the only thing that we're experiencing is, you know, we don't like the consequence of it or we're, we're fed up with the consequence of sin, but we, we don't actually have hearts that are turned towards God and genuinely broken over the sin 
just because it's rebellion against God, that's just what it is, then we have fallen short and we're following more in the pattern of Numbers 14 and 1 Samuel 15 than the genuine heart of repentance that we see in you know, Psalms 51 or Daniel 9 even. Um, so super convicting passages. Um, one, one more passage we're going to look at tonight and then we're going to wrap it up. Um, turn with me to Jeremiah 14. I think this will be the last passage that we turn to tonight. Comes after Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremy, do you mind reading uh, Jeremiah 14, verses 1 through 10 for us? Very good, thank you. So, walking through verses 7 through 9, you see the people, um, they, they admit their sin, they plead that God would forgive them in verse 7 for God's own namesake, and um, they, they recognize their backsliding before God. All these things um, very much so sounds like a pretty contrite prayer of confession before God, right? to the point where you would expect the following verses to say something like, and the Lord relented. He heard their cry, and He relented of the disaster that, that, they, that He had on them. But the reality is, these people are confessing with their mouths, but their hearts are far from God, right? Like we saw in Jeremiah 3.10, if you want to flip back and talk about Judah, it says... Um, Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. So there's an aspect of, yeah, they're turning. Yeah, they're saying these things. Yeah, they're confessing. But their hearts are still far from God. Look at verse 10. Thus the Lord says concerning his people, They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. 
Therefore the Lord does not accept them, and he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. So even though their confession sounded great, like it, it sounded great, that's, that's a great confession, verses, verses 7 through 9, the Lord says, nah, they have loved their backsliding. They, their hearts are still turned towards their sin. They love it. They love their sin. And they are not going to receive forgiveness. They are not going to, I'm not going to relent from the judgment I've planned for them just because they've spoken these words of confession while their hearts are still loving and chasing after their sin, right? And I mean, so it is with us. We come to understand in the New Testament, it's, it's really no different. Like, if our hearts are still loving our sin and going after our sin and have not been changed by the Holy Spirit, there's been no sort of renewal in our lives by the Holy Spirit, then we can't expect to be saved because we do something like just speak a couple words or repeat a prayer. I mean, that, that's why we are so against doing things like just repeating a prayer um, as if it's some sort of ritual that'll grant us forgiveness, right? It's such a matter of turning our hearts towards God, which of course in the New Testament is expressed as turning the mind towards God, a, a changing of the mind. So, um, again though, same, same context a little bit later. Same thing crops up. Uh, Dad, do you mind reading uh, 14, Jeremiah 14, verses 19 through 22? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good, and for the time of healing, and there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you, since you have made all Very good. So again, we see an excellent model of a contrite prayer. The people even go, we looked at this verse earlier, they even go as far as to confess the sins of their father. Um, they even plead for God's own namesake, um, again, that he would forgive them, right? So this looks like great prayer of repentance, right? Then you get to verse chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. God responds, Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And then they ask you, Where shall we go? You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Those who are for pestilence to pestilence, and those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity, so God responds um, and basically says, you know, we see in the Old Testament Moses getting up on behalf of the people and says in multiple places, God, please relent. These people are stiff-necked, I know, but please relent. Be gracious because of your character. Same kind of thing goes on with Samuel a couple times. God, please forgive them. Um, and God basically says, look, if Samuel and Moses themselves got up here before me today, it wouldn't do any good. This people has gone too far beyond me. All they're doing is coming at me with their words, but their hearts are still set on backsliding. Uh, and so these are just all examples of when the heart does not turn to God, um, it's become too late for them to turn to God and doing things like confessing with their mouths when their hearts are not turned towards God.
Now, I do want to say and encourage y'all, God never looks at somebody in all the contexts that I've seen in the Old Testament. God never looks at somebody that's genuinely repentant and says, okay, no more forgiveness for you. You've crossed too many lines. You're repenting, but I'm not going to forgive you. What does happen is God will look down on somebody who depends on their pretentious works or pretentious prayers and who's crossed the line, and he says, okay, no more repentance for you. Even though you're remorseful and even though you don't like the consequence of sin and you're trying to depend on your actions to, to get me to not pour out my wrath on you and to cause this judgment against you, it's too late. I'm not going to grant you the grace of repentance anymore, right? So I just want to encourage you. It's never that the people actually genuinely turn to God in true contrite repentance and God rejects them. In each of these cases, even in Jeremiah, we saw from chapter 3, they were pretentious in their turning. And from chapter 14, um, verse, verse 10, their hearts were still loving, wandering, and they were unrestrained. So their repentance has all the external markers of being genuine, but it wasn't genuine repentance, right? And so I just want to reiterate, God doesn't look at a genuinely repentant person and say, okay, I'm not going to forgive you even though you have repentance. He just withholds genuine repentance from people at certain times in the Bible because it's become too late. And even though they're contrite, and even though they mourn and seek God, um, it's become shallow and their hearts are hard and they don't actually turn to God in their hearts. It's become impossible for them to. And then at that point, if they just try to like obey to force God to have mercy on them, they're just depending on their own works to get them salvation before God, whether it be from their enemies or from 40 years of wilderness wandering, whatever the judgment be in that context, they're just depending on their works to grant them good standing before God rather than having true repentance. So, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's a, those examples of, yeah, being remorseful for sin, but it doesn't do anything if... if all that causes you to do is depend on your own works and doesn't actually drive you to genuine repentance before God. So how are we respond to these passages? They're really challenging. Um, they're kind of scary. The main implication, the main takeaway is don't delay. Um, Psalm 32, 5 through 6, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. And Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If God is working on your heart to draw you to repentance, there's no guarantee that He might continue working on your heart forever. Repentance is a grace from God, and we're never promised that God's grace is unlimited. Yes, it's amazing. Yes, it's abundant. But we have no promise to um, be presumptuous about it and presume that it's going to keep extending to us to the day of our death. There's a very um, scary reality that there might come a day before our death where God might not be found or um, it might become too late. And so 
the implication, the takeaway from these passages is do not delay in repentance. Um, one other note from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a great book um, on repentance if you want to continue studying repentance in the Old Testament. Um, but just, just two sides here of either failing to turn to God or a promise when you do turn to God. Um, Jeremiah 18, 11, Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. This again is to Judah, who has only turned to him in pretentiousness. They haven't turned to him genuinely. And so he's saying, if y'all do not, if y'all do not amend your ways and your deeds, I'm shaping a plan of disaster against you. We always turn to Jeremiah 29:11 and just immediately apply that to everyone. God's got a great and glorious plan of hope and welfare for you. But that's not the case for the person that doesn't repent, right? Um, speaking to the same nation in the same book by the same author, he's saying, no, God will, has a plan that's shaping disaster against you if you do not repent, speaking to the people of Judah. Um, for genuine repentance, Jeremiah 29, 11 is a great promise for the truly repentant nation of Judah. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans uh, for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. God will be found at that time. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And there you get again the heart, seeking God with all your heart. So again, this, is, this isn't just a blanket statement applying to everybody. It's applying to those people that are seeking God with all their heart, which is really the center of Old Testament repentance. If I had to give you one sentence definition, it would be turning to God with all your heart. I should have put 1 Samuel 7, 3 up here again. I didn't, but... That's probably got one of the best definitions of repentance in the Old Testament. So if you want to, I think Jeremy, or I'm sorry, Tyler's been putting these um, slides up. So I put a couple different passages here if y'all want to keep on studying these things. These are passages we've talked a lot about but are just really central to the idea of repentance in the Old Testament. Um, and it's really cool if you do decide to read through these. I wouldn't do it in the order I put them up here. I would do it in the order of the Old Testament. I accidentally got them out of order, but it's fascinating because you can see the commands to repent and then the people failing to repent before exile, during the monarchy, then into exile, then after exile. It's just continually, you know, you, you have either people turning to God with all their heart or they're failing to, and that's quite a dividing line in the Old Testament. So thank you all for y'all's attention, and um, Brother Joey, can you pray for us um, while we dismiss?